Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Back to the Basics, Love One Another. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 2nd, 2010. Last month I watched a documentary film that a friend recommended. The title is called Lord Save Us From Your Followers. I'd describe it as a mediocre movie, but one which nevertheless has a powerful message that made me squirm in my seat. The writer-director Dan Merchant, an evangelical believer in the best sense of the word, dons a jumpsuit plastered with religious cliches and then hits the road as bumper sticker man in order to interview people about one single question. Merchant wonders, why has the gospel of love become the inflection point of so much bitter controversy? The movie reminded me of the book by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons called Unchristians, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity, from the year 2007. In fact, it's reviewed on our website. Kinnaman's three-year social scientific survey by the Barna Group documents how an overwhelming percentage of 16 to 29-year-olds view Christians with hostility, resentment, and disdain. These broadly and deeply negative views of Christians are not just superficial stereotypes with no basis in reality, says Kinnaman. Nor are the critics people who've had no contact with churches or Christians. It would be a mistake, he argues, for believers to protest that outside outrage at Christians is a misperception. No, it's based upon their real experiences with today's Christians. In addition to their statistical research, the book includes anecdotes from people who were interviewed. According to Kinnaman's study, here are the percentages of people outside the church who think that the following words describe present-day Christianity. Anti-homosexual, 91%. Judgmental, 87%. Hypocritical, 85%. Old-fashioned, 78%. Too political, 75%. Out of touch with reality, 72%. Insensitive to others, 70%. Boring, 68%. It would be hard to overestimate, says Kinnaman, how firmly people reject and feel rejected by Christians. Or think about it this way, he suggests. When you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, neighbor, or business associate who's an outsider, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay-hater, homophobic. Of course, you don't think of yourself in these terms, says Kinnaman, but that's how outsiders think of you. Gabe Lyons of the Fermi Project, who commissioned the Barna research, remembers his first look at the data, and I quote, I'll never forget sitting in Starbucks, poring through the research results on my laptop. 
As I soaked it in, I glanced at the people around me and was overwhelmed with the thought, this is what they think of me. It was a sobering thought to know that if I had stood up and announced myself as a Christian to the customers in Starbucks that day, they would have associated me with every one of the negative perceptions described in this book. A new command I give to you, love one another, says Jesus in this week's Gospel. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not obvious in what sense this is a new commandment. In fact, it's an ancient commandment that goes back 3,000 years to the founding of the Hebrew community. We read in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, Love your neighbor as yourself. Dan Merchant, Kinnaman, and Lyons are hardly the first Christians to be agitated about this question. Way back in the 4th century, the hermit Xanthius admitted that, quote, a dog is better than I am, for he, for he has love and does not judge. And St. Maximus the Confessor from the 7th century longed to experience the command of Jesus. He writes, Blessed is the person who can love all people equally, always thinking good of everyone. The necessary connection between claiming to love God and demonstrating that we love our fellow human beings was so embedded in the early Christian traditions that we find this teaching repeated almost verbatim by Paul, Romans 13, 8 and 9, Galatians 5.14, by James, James 2.8, and most memorably by John in 1 John 4.20-21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The only thing that matters, wrote Paul, is faith expressing itself in love. You can summarize the entire Bible, he insisted, in five words. Love your neighbor as yourself. To the Corinthians he wrote that the greatest gift is love without which were nothing but an irritation and a nuisance. In writing to the Romans, Paul urged the believers not to, know, not to owe anyone anything except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. When God spoke to Peter in a vision to eat impure or unclean foods in the epistle for this week, he objected as a conscientious Jew. Surely not, Lord, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Acts chapter 10, 14. When he did obey God anyhow and proceeded to meet with the Gentile named Cornelius and observe the same grace of God in a person so otherwise different from himself, 
The Jewish believers criticized him. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. 11.3 This pressure to reject an outsider was so strong that even after learning his lesson in this week's text, Peter lapsed into hypocrisy on the matter. And so Paul publicly rebuked him. Galatians 2.12 God, Peter learned, was not a God of partiality or favoritism. He warmly loves every person from any nation. The good news that was sent to the people of Israel, said Peter, was that the God of grace was clearly given even to the Gentiles. If the God of all creation did not consider Cornelius and the Gentiles impure or unclean, then Peter realized that neither could he. And what eventually transpired among those earliest followers of Jesus, said Marcus Borg, was a community shaped not by the ethos and politics of purity, but by the ethos and politics of compassion. I found it a humbling exercise to ask, who were the people that I sanctimoniously spurn as impure, unclean, dirty, contaminated, and far from God? Who was my personal and contemporary version of Peter's Cornelius? Maybe Rudy Giuliani and his wife, who between them have been married six times? Perhaps greedy executives? Lazy welfare queens? Republicans who lied us into a catastrophic war? How have I distorted the self-sacrificing, egalitarian love of God into self-serving, exclusionary elitism? What boundaries do I wrongly build because of my fears, or might I bravely shatter in the name of love? One of the funniest moments in Dan Merchant's film is when the city council of St. Paul, Minnesota bans the Easter Bunny from City Hall because of its putative association with Easter. In the last part of the film, though, there's a very powerful scene in which Merchant sets up a confession booth at a Portland Gay Pride Festival. Only this time, Merchant was the one confessing our horribly unchristian lack of love. And now for further reflection, consider the words of the church father Tertullian, who wrote from about 155 to 220 AD. Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. Or secondly, consider how the early believers subverted no normal social hierarchies of wealth, ethnicity, religion, and gender in favor of a radical egalitarianism before God and with each other. Galatians 3.28 there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And for further reading, see the book by Armartia Sin, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny.
For books this week, I review a very slender volume by Ellie Wiesel. The title is Rashi, New York Shock and Books, 2009, 111 pages. Ellie Wiesel, born in 1928, professor at Boston University and winner of the 1986 Nobel Peace Prize, has written nearly 60 books. This little volume takes its place in a series of books by Schocken called Jewish Encounters, the purpose of which is to promote Jewish culture, ideas, and literature. About a, buzz, about a dozen books have already been published in the series, with about 20 more forthcoming. Wiesel has written the volume on a person named Rashi, not so much because he might be his descendant, or even out of a sense of intellectual obligation. Rather, he says, quote, I think of Rashi and am overwhelmed by a strange nostalgia. Ever since childhood, he has accompanied me with his insight and charm. Solomon ben Isaac, later known by the shortened Rashi, was born around the year 1040 in Troyes, France. He died in the year 1105. Legends surround his birth in early years, and much is left to conjecture. We know that he had three daughters, but we don't even know his wife's name. After studies in Germany, Rashi returned to Troyes and became the intellectual and spiritual leader of the Jewish community there of about a hundred families. His commentary on the Bible from 1475 was the first book to be printed in Hebrew. After an introductory preface, in three short chapters, Wiesel surveys the contributions of Rashi. He first considers his biblical commentaries, using Genesis as an example. He suggests that his insights are both deeply faithful to the sacred text and also the product of wild inventiveness that is both playful and serious. The work of human imagination, and yet simultaneously a work of sacred interpretation, he then turns to Rashi's thoughts on Israel, its people, and the land. For Rashi, the people of Israel live and act at the center of history. Is this a feeling of superiority? No, says Wiesel, singularity. In contrary to Christian claims, says Rashi, the God of Israel did not change people, and he never will. The people of Israel remains the true Israel for all time. In a final chapter, Wiesel turns to sadness and memory. Rashi was 55 when Pope Urban II issued his call for the First Crusade, November 27, 1095. Jews in Troyes fared better than many, but in other parts of Europe they faced forced conversions or slaughter. And so, an interesting question arose for Jewish leaders. Should a Jew who voluntarily converted to Christianity, but then wanted to return to Judaism, be received? A chronology, glossary, and short bibliography complete this book. In 1989, the Rashi Institute opened in Troyes, France to further Jewish scholarship. Wiesel's slender volume is no substitute for more scholarly works. Rather, it's a simple introduction written for a general audience, 
about one of medieval Europe's greatest scholars and spiritual leaders. The title Rashi, R-A-S-H-I, by Elie Wiesel. For film this week, I review the movie Up from the year 2009. There's trouble aplenty in Pixar's animated Paradise Falls. The curmudgeonly Carl, a 78-year-old widower, complete with a walker with tennis balls and a hearing aid that screeches, is deeply bereft of his childhood sweetheart, Ellie. His lonesome life collides with an irritating, eager beaver wilderness explorer named Russell, age 8, who's intent on earning his merit badge for helping an old person. One day, when Carl is reminiscing over his wife's scrapbook of, quote, stuff I'm going to do, end quote, he sees a note scribbled by his deceased wife, thanks for the adventures, now you go have a new one. And that's just what he does by fastening thousands of balloons to his house and floating to Paradise Falls, an enchanted land of colorful birds, talking dogs, and one very mean man. Rescue is in order. The old and the young bond as buddies, and merit badge glory awaits. Pixar's Up shows once again that animated films are no longer only for kids. It won the 2009 Academy Award for Best Animated Feature Film. The movie Up. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972. The title of the poem, Address to the Lord. This is, one, this is one of his 11 addresses to the Lord. John Berryman. Master of beauty, craftsman of the snowflake, inimitable contriver, endower of earth so gorgeous and different from the boring moon, Thank you for such as it is my gift. I have made up a morning prayer to you, containing with precision everything that most matters. According to thy will, the thing begins. It took me off and on two days. It does not aim at eloquence. You have come to my rescue again and again in my impassable, sometimes despairing years. You have allowed my brilliant friends to destroy themselves, and I am still here, severely damaged but functioning. Unknowable, as I am unknown to my guinea pigs, how can I love you? I only as far as gratitude and awe confidently and absolutely go. I have no idea whether we live again. It doesn't seem likely from either the scientific or philosophical point of view, but certainly all things are possible to you. 
and I believe as fixedly in the resurrection appearances to Peter and to Paul as I believe I sit in this blue chair. Only that may have been a special case to establish their initiatory faith. Whatever your end may be, accept my amazement. May I stand until death forever at attention for any your least instruction or enlightenment. I even feel sure you will assist me again, master of insight and beauty. John Berryman, one of his eleven addresses to the Lord. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 2nd, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.